This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hi, I'm Blair. Want to hear something scary? Join me as I read the creepiest urban legends, folk tales, and ghost stories that I learn on my travels around the world and that we receive from listeners like you. But only if you think you can handle it. Listen on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, sweet screams. Due to the graphic nature of these crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of violence and murder that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. Cameron Barkley awoke to a knock at the front door. He staggered down the hallway and opened it a crack. Jeremy Steinke and his young girlfriend were standing outside, looking anxious. Cam rubbed his temples and ushered the couple inside, He had just sold Jeremy some ecstasy and coke a few hours earlier. What was he doing back already? Jeremy stepped into the dim light of Cam's apartment. He looked terrible. His eye was bloodied and bruised, and his arm looked messed up too. He'd obviously been in a fight. Cam pointed Jeremy and his girlfriend toward the couch. They sink into it like they'd just come back from a war. The dark circles under their eyes and their awkward silence unnerved Cam. Things only got worse when Jeremy turned to him and finally spoke. In a halting voice, he asked, How do you clean blood off knives? Hi, I'm Lainey Hobbs, and this is Crimes of Passion, a ParCast original. The legal definition of a crime of passion is a violent crime that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. But in this show, we explore how passionate relationships sometimes lead us to criminal activity. How does a husband and wife become killer and victim or killer and co-conspirator? If there's a thin line between love and hate, what manipulates our relationships into deadly results? You can find episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Crimes of Passion for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Crimes of Passion in the search bar. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. Last week, 
We heard how 23-year-old Jeremy Steinke manipulated a 12-year-old girl known as JR to enter into a sexual relationship. JR soon became so obsessed with Jeremy that she asked him to kill her parents so they could run away together. This week, we'll talk about how a horrific night of violence ended with Jeremy and JR fleeing from the police. We'll also talk about the subsequent investigation, arrest, and trials that made headlines across the country. In the pre-dawn hours of April 23, 2006, Jeremy Steinke snuck into the home of Mark and Deborah, the parents of his 12-year-old girlfriend, JR. He was dressed all in black, including a black face mask, and he was armed with a knife. High on cocaine and ecstasy, he planned to kill Mark and Deborah in cold blood, mimicking the violence he'd seen in his favorite movie, Natural Born Killers. After Jeremy broke in through a basement window, Deborah woke up and went downstairs to investigate the noise. As soon as she entered the basement, Jeremy lunged at her. He grabbed Deborah by the shoulder and stabbed her in the heart with a knife. She collapsed to the floor. Mark heard the commotion and ran downstairs to see Jeremy standing over his wife's body. Immediately, Mark went on the offensive. Someone had left a screwdriver on the stairs. Mark grabbed it and leapt toward Jeremy. He tried to stab Jeremy in the chest, but Jeremy deflected the blow. Mark then grabbed Jeremy's face and tried to gouge the younger man's eyes out with his thumbs. Jeremy flailed out, stabbing Mark repeatedly with his knife. But Mark, perhaps fueled by adrenaline, didn't loosen his grip on Jeremy. He closed his hands around Jeremy's throat and tried to strangle him. At some point, JR started to run downstairs to intervene, but she stopped mid-descent, paralyzed by fear. She later said, I saw my mom at the bottom of the stairs lying there. I saw my dad and Jeremy fighting. I heard them yelling things. I ran back upstairs. Jeremy continued stabbing at Mark while he was being choked. After two dozen cuts, Mark's strength finally gave out. He fell to the ground and weakly asked why Jeremy was doing this. Jeremy replied, it's what your daughter wanted. They were the last words Mark ever heard as he died from blood loss. After making sure Mark was dead, Jeremy went up the basement stairs to the main floor. He found JR waiting for him and they embraced. According to Jeremy, JR told him that she'd be right back and then went up to her room. When she didn't return right away, Jeremy followed her upstairs. According to Jeremy, he found JR attempting to strangle her eight-year-old brother. They had previously discussed killing the boy because, according to JR, it would be cruel to leave him as an orphan. As Jeremy looked on, the boy managed to wrench himself free of JR's grip. He ran out into the hallway, but someone, either Jeremy or JR, dragged him back to his bedroom. Jeremy later said that JR grabbed the knife from him and stabbed her little brother through the throat. He claimed he didn't touch the boy, but JR contradicted this. 
She admitted that she held the knife and attempted to stab the boy, but she couldn't go through with it. Instead, she held her brother down while Jeremy stabbed him in the neck. The boy must have struggled. Police later found bloodstains everywhere, on the carpet, walls, and furniture. As he was bleeding, he tried to run from his attackers or possibly fight back against them. Police later discovered a toy lightsaber near the child's body. An officer said, I suspect he grabbed it and tried to use it with the blood all over it. Once he was dead, JR and Jeremy left his small body in the bedroom. JR went to the bathroom to wash off the knife, which she left by the sink. She then packed up some clothes while Jeremy anxiously waited for her downstairs. Jeremy couldn't keep still. He paced and fidgeted. He didn't want to be in the house anymore. He was trembling. He had almost died. His girlfriend's dad had almost killed him. It could have been him lying dead in the basement right now, instead of the other way around. He shuddered at the close call. He glanced out the window. It was still dark, but the sun would be up soon. Somebody would see his truck. Maybe somebody had already seen it. Maybe the police were coming this very second. Jeremy took a breath, trying to calm himself down. He was too shaken up, too agitated, too high for all of this. He glanced up the stairs, but JR still wasn't coming down. He had to get out of there. In a split second, he made a decision. She was on her own. While JR was upstairs, Jeremy sprinted out of the house, leaving a bloody handprint on the back door. He hurried outside to his truck and sped away back to his trailer. Jeremy had friends crashing at his place, and when he got home, they noticed he had a black eye and other bruises. They recalled that he immediately jumped in the shower, hardly even saying hello to them. When JR realized Jeremy had left her, she began to panic. She didn't want to be alone with the bodies of her parents and brother. She wasn't going to let Jeremy leave her behind. She telephoned a taxi company and asked them to send a cab to her house. After making the phone call, she realized she didn't have any money. She ran to 7-Eleven, several blocks away, and used her mother's bank card to withdraw some cash. By the time she got back to her house, the cab driver was waiting for her. She slid into the taxi and gave the driver Jeremy's address. Jeremy was just getting out of the shower when JR arrived. Without talking much, they gathered Jeremy's bloody clothes into a garbage bag. Then they walked to the apartment of Jeremy's drug dealer, Cam, who he'd visited a few hours before. Cam hesitantly let them inside. Jeremy asked him if he had any ice for his eye. Then he and JR hung out at the apartment for a while. They looked exhausted and the dealer offered him his room so they could get some sleep. JR in particular seemed drained. The dealer later said, she was spaced out, wasn't all there. It was like she had seen a ghost. In Cam's bedroom, Jeremy pulled 12-year-old JR on top of him and they had sex. Jeremy once again committed statutory rape. The preteen later said, he was trying to make me feel better and comfort me. I was scared. Before I continue with JR's psychology, 
Please note that I am not a licensed psychologist or a psychiatrist, but I have done a lot of research for this show. JR's reliance on Jeremy for comfort is not an uncommon dynamic between victims and abusers. Forensic psychologist Nadia Wager explained that child predators work to create an emotional bond with the child through becoming their best friend and making the child feel special. In this way, the child becomes emotionally dependent on the perpetrator. The dependency is further fueled by isolating the child from others. Some predators may turn their victims against their loved ones. In this case, Jeremy literally murdered JR's family, cutting all her ties completely. Afterward, she had no one else but him. JR likely felt this dependence keenly in the aftermath of the murders. After resting at the dealer's apartment, she and Jeremy went to the liquor store to pick up some drinks, then went on to a nearby house party. Reportedly, they seemed to be in good spirits. The murders were now behind them. It's possible they were compartmentalizing and the killings didn't seem real. JR later said, I was so out of my mind. I couldn't really process what had happened and I was trying really hard not to think about it. But while JR tried to forget the gruesome scene back at her house, others were just discovering the horror. That afternoon, JR's six-year-old neighbor dropped by her house to play with JR's brother. When nobody answered the door, he looked into the basement window and saw bodies covered in blood. He raced home to tell his mother, who phoned the police. At 1.45 p.m., four officers searched the house. They found a little black dog whining and guarding the bodies of Mark and Deborah in the basement. Upstairs, they found the body of JR's eight-year-old brother. They saw another bedroom, clearly belonging to a teenage girl, but JR was nowhere to be found. Police worried that she may have been kidnapped by intruders who had murdered her family. They shared her photograph with journalists and called on the media to spread the word about the missing teen. Back at the house party, JR had no idea she was a missing person. She and Jeremy even gloated to one of Jeremy's friends, 22-year-old James Wally, about what they'd done. At one point during the party, Jeremy took James aside and said, We killed my girlfriend's family last night. I gutted them like a fish. JR added, my little brother gargled. James couldn't imagine they were really serious. He later remarked, who would believe their best friend did something like that? Jeremy also took another friend aside, 19-year-old Casey Lancaster. Jeremy knew that she had a crush on him. She was always eager to do him favors. And that night, he took advantage of her generosity. He asked Casey to clean out his truck for him, he told her he'd gotten it messy and didn't want his mother to see. Casey was happy to help. She picked up some disposable wipes and cleaned the interior of his car. She later said she saw spots of blood, but she assumed it was Jeremy's. She'd seen his black eye and guessed he'd been bleeding after some kind of fight. She didn't know why Jeremy asked her to clean the truck, later saying, he didn't really give me any reason. After getting rid of the evidence, she returned to the party. Jeremy and JR stayed at the house until the evening. 
Witnesses saw them kissing, laughing, and whispering to each other on the couch. As far as other partygoers could tell, they looked happy. As the couple blew off steam, police continued their search for JR. But it soon became clear that the girl they were looking for wasn't the victim they believed her to be. She was their prime suspect. Up next, Jeremy and JR run away together. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. On the afternoon of April 23, 2006, 23-year-old Jeremy Steinke and 12-year-old JR celebrated at a house party in Medicine Hat, Canada. Nearby, police were discovering the bodies of JR's family, who Jeremy and JR had killed early that morning. At first, officials assumed JR might have been kidnapped. They set out to learn everything they could about the missing preteen. They called Sandra Richard, a guidance counselor at JR's school, asking for the names of JR's friends. They hoped that she may have simply spent the night at a friend's house. Trying to provide as much information as she could, Sandra Richard got permission from the school to search JR's locker. She looked for a notebook or a pad on which JR could have written down friends' phone numbers. Instead, she found a series of cartoons drawn by JR. The doodles depicted a series of stick figures meant to represent JR and her family. The pictures showed JR pouring gasoline on her family and lighting them on fire. Sandra Richard was horrified. She began to suspect that JR had something to do with her family's deaths. Back at the party, Jeremy and JR didn't yet know that police had found their victims but word got back to them that JR's picture was being shown on the news. They weren't sure what to do next, but they knew they had to get out of town. Jeremy had two friends visiting from Leader, Saskatchewan, about two hours away. They needed a ride home anyway, so Jeremy asked Casey Lancaster if she could drive them. When she agreed, Jeremy and JR told her that they wanted to come along too. The 15-year-old girlfriend of Jeremy's drug dealer also joined them as she was good friends with Casey. The group of six departed Alberta around 8.30 p.m. Casey later claimed that she had no idea Jeremy was trying to escape a police manhunt. She thought they were just bored and wanted to get away for a while. At that same time, Medicine Hat police were quickly tracing the triple homicide back to Jeremy and JR. That night, two friends of Jeremy's came forward with information. One was James Wally, who Jeremy had confessed to at the party. The other was Jeremy's former roommate, Jordan Atfield. The night before the killings, Jeremy had tried to recruit him to be an accomplice. He then threatened Jordan to keep quiet after he refused to join in. By the end of the night, police concluded that Jeremy Steinke and JR had killed her parents. 
but they still had to track the pair down. They didn't have to look hard to find clues as to where the couple had gone. That night, police were called to break up the rowdy house party that Jeremy and JR had attended earlier. An officer spoke to one of the attendees who mentioned the couple had been there. More police soon arrived to question the partygoers. Some of Jeremy's friends and acquaintances mentioned that he may have gone to Leader. Police sent a bulletin to Leader authorities, asking them to be on the lookout for their murder suspects. Meanwhile, Jeremy and JR were speeding down the highway. They got to Leader around 11 p.m. that night with their friends. They dropped one of the teens off at his house. Then the rest of the group lingered in the pickup. They didn't know where to go next. They decided to park in a field off a dirt road, smoke some marijuana, and go to sleep in the truck. The following morning, they needed gas, so they drove to a service station. When Casey went in to use the bathroom, she spotted a newspaper reporting on the murders. She was shocked. She wasn't sure if JR already knew that her family was dead or if she'd have to break the news herself. She bought the paper and returned to the truck. When she showed the article to Jeremy and JR, they seemed amused rather than broken up. Casey was stunned by their muted reaction. JR didn't seem upset at all. Casey drove them to the parking lot of a nearby high school. The group sat in the truck and paged through the newspaper. Casey's 15-year-old friend told the others that her grandparents owned a cabin in Pine Lake, Alberta. She suggested they go hide out there. They all decided to rest for a bit before making a decision. Jeremy and JR moved to the back of Casey's pickup and laid down in the truck bed under a blanket. They didn't realize that the truck had attracted the attention of police officer Aaron Ewart. He'd seen the police bulletin from Medicine Hat the night before, and he was on the lookout for out-of-town teenagers. When he spotted them, he called for backup. More officers soon arrived and surrounded the truck. Officer Ewart yanked the blanket off Jeremy and JR. JR wasn't wearing her pants, but police wouldn't let her put them on. They handcuffed the group and put them in separate police cars. As he was arrested, Jeremy told Casey, tell my mom she can have my TV, man, that I love her. At the police station, officers locked JR in a cell. She was subdued, almost in disbelief. At one point, she told an officer, I can't believe this is happening to me. On Monday, April 24th, the evening after the murders, Jeremy and JR were charged with three counts of first-degree murder. JR became the youngest person in Canada's history to face multiple murder charges. The following day, JR and Jeremy were held in separate interrogation rooms as police tried to elicit confessions from the pair. One officer, Sergeant Chris Sheehan, was able to develop a rapport with JR. He started by chatting with her about her favorite bands until she felt comfortable enough to open up to him. As she began talking about the night of the murders, he was startled at how calm she appeared. She blamed Jeremy for the deaths, saying, I know he did it, but I don't hate him for it. She told the officer that Jeremy had done it out of love for her. She seemed more concerned about his well-being than about her murdered family. Her continued devotion to Jeremy, her partner in crime, is likely another consequence of Jeremy's twisted predation on the girl. 
Pepperdine University forensic and clinical psychologist Dr. Judy Ho explained, After being entrenched together in something so serious that it escalates to the point of killing, it binds a couple closer together and creates this weird intimacy between them. Even so, reality began to set in as JR told her story. When she finally talked about the murders, she began to sob. The sergeant encouraged her to write out an apology to her family, and JR agreed. With a felt tip marker, JR composed a letter asking for forgiveness, writing, I wish I could take everything back. I wish it hadn't happened. I wish you were here with me now. Sheehan also told her she could write letters to Jeremy. She dashed off a short note, telling him how much she still loved him. When the sergeant came by to drop off the note, Jeremy grabbed it eagerly. He read it quickly once and then slower a second time, savoring every word. After a bleak day in jail, JR's words felt like a lifeline, one positive thing in a day of hopelessness. It was hard to grasp how everything had gone so wrong so fast. The plans he and JR had of escaping and living in Europe in a castle together, they had felt real. Only days ago, Jeremy could have envisioned that future so clearly in his head, but now he realized he'd never really had a chance of getting there. Everything had spun out of control, and Jeremy felt like he was losing his mind. His thoughts wouldn't stop racing. He wondered what his friends thought of him, what his mother thought. He used to want people to see him as a monster. Now he really was one. But it didn't make him feel powerful. It only filled him with a terrible, terrible panic. On Wednesday morning, April 26th, Sergeant Sheehan met with Jeremy in an interview room for questioning. Jeremy was agitated and fearful. He insisted that the killings were all JR's idea. He had only gone along with them because it was what she wanted. He made constant excuses, saying he wasn't in the right state of mind the night of the murders. He claimed he'd been too high on drugs to know what he was doing. Upon further questioning, Jeremy admitted to killing Mark and Deborah, though he said JR had killed her eight-year-old brother on her own. At the end of the interrogation, he bitterly told the sergeant, you got everything you need, I'm going away for life. He then started banging his head on the table, saying he hated himself until Sergeant Sheehan brought him back to his cell. Three days had passed since the murders and police had already secured the arrest and confessions from both suspects, but they hadn't yet gotten justice. It would be a year before J.R. and Jeremy's trials would begin. In the meantime, the community at large had to reckon with the awful crime. Coming up, Jeremy and J.R. make headlines across Canada, drawing both critics and admirers as their trials approach. Now, back to the story. On April 24, 2006, 23-year-old Jeremy Steinke and 12-year-old JR were arrested for the murders of JR's parents and younger brother. The killings horrified the community of Medicine Hat Canada and ignited a fierce debate about the young preteen's culpability. 
many felt sympathy for JR. Sociologist and author Mark Totten was quoted in the Calgary Herald saying, a young person in a case like this is usually caught up in a web of terror and is fearful for their life. Experts didn't hesitate to call her relationship with Jeremy Steinke abusive. People wondered why the 12-year-old was so vulnerable to the older man's influence. Some felt her parents must have been inattentive or careless. Others blamed goth culture or heavy metal music. Wild rumors circulated that the killings had been part of some kind of occult ritual. Carl Roschke, a religious studies professor at the University of Denver, told the Calgary Herald, these two sound like true warriors for the dark side. Still, others attributed JR's fall to the emerging social media networks where she spent much of her time. Sociologist John Manzo reasoned, this is an unexplored danger of the internet that it gives people who would normally be isolated in their desires a social network to find like-minded people. But JR's Nixopia page, which remained active after her arrest, revealed an online community disgusted by her actions. Users bombarded her with messages of condemnation. Many of the angriest comments came from other young teens. They slammed her for giving goth culture and Wicca a bad name. In the wake of the murders and the publicity surrounding them, the community turned against anyone who projected an alternative image. One dismayed girl handed leaflets out to reporters, asking them to stop covering the story. She wrote, Perfectly well-educated, kind, wonderful people are getting threatened and beaten because of stereotypes. One journalist, criticized for his reporting on Jeremy Steinke's goth background, printed a follow-up a few days later, writing, It is at this point that I am obliged to point out that the vast majority of goths are neither vampires nor lichens, but decent, peaceful people who are more likely to harbor serene beliefs such as Buddhism. If Jeremy and JR regretted the bad publicity they brought to their community, they didn't show it. The letters they exchanged to each other in jail suggested that they reveled in their notoriety. In one note, JR told Jeremy, my lawyer tells me we're legends. She added, we've been in the papers every day, apparently. I haven't seen them, but hopefully can Monday. JR also asked in the letter whether he thought they'd someday get engaged. Jeremy wrote back the following day, asking JR to marry him. She replied, I would love to. Soon after that, police officers at the jail stopped delivering letters between the two. Though they were frustrated at not being allowed to communicate with each other, they could still rely on support from others. Many of Jeremy's friends in particular became his ardent defenders, especially the younger girls he'd lavished attention and affection on. While in jail, Jeremy made regular phone calls to a 14-year-old girl he sometimes hung out with at the mall. Even locked up, he continued his pattern of grooming young teens for abuse. The girl had been infatuated with him before, and her crush grew into an obsession in the wake of the murders and publicity. Anytime Jeremy called her, she recorded him so that she could hear his voice whenever she wanted. 
She also waited for hours outside the jail and showed up to his court hearings, apparently hoping to catch glimpses of him whenever she could. She was just one of several young teens that turned out to support him. Locals were aghast by his budding following. Some took to anonymous internet message boards to comment on the situation. In one post, a user wrote about how disturbing it was that Jeremy had amassed a fan club. The poster asked, where are these girls' parents? A student at Medicine Hat High School also commented saying, there are tons of little goths who love him. My buddy's little sister is obsessed with him and she's only in grade eight. Criminologist Jack Levin discussed a similar phenomenon wherein some adult women fall for serial killers. He said, they love the celebrity status. They are the same women who might correspond with a rock star or a rap artist. While Jeremy's supporters were thrilled by the attention the case brought to the quiet community, most residents responded to his actions with anger and outrage. The turmoil made it all the more difficult for those affected by the murders to grieve. On Saturday, April 29th, family and friends held a memorial service for JR's family. Deborah's brother begged reporters for space and privacy after the service. Jeremy's mother was also thrust into the spotlight in the aftermath of the murders. Jacqueline May was an admitted addict who was diagnosed with terminal lung disease. Her entire adult life, she had bounced from one abusive relationship to another. She was already depressed and in poor health prior to Jeremy's arrest. The news that her son had committed murder devastated her. She had thought that, despite all of their misfortunes, she and Jeremy had shared a close bond. She told reporters, If we ever disagreed, he would always apologize after. We were like that. Jacqueline May had also believed, given Jeremy's history of being bullied and abused, that he would never lash out at anyone else. It shook her to realize she didn't know her son as well as she thought. After his arrest, she reportedly created an altar-like shrine to pray for Jeremy. She felt helpless, insisting to reporters that her son wasn't himself. In early May of 2006, both Jeremy and JR submitted to psychiatric evaluations. The results were not made public, but journalists later reported that JR was diagnosed with conduct disorder, an oppositional defiant disorder. These disorders are often precursors to antisocial personality disorder and psychopathic behaviors. After reviewing the evaluation, one prosecutor revealed that JR failed to show any remorse or take any responsibility for her crimes. She described the girl as seriously disturbed. These reports were included in the prosecution's evidence against JR when her trial commenced in June of 2007. JR pleaded not guilty. Her lawyer argued that the hard evidence only implicated Jeremy. But the prosecution pointed out that it didn't matter whether JR had actually held the knife. If she had assisted, encouraged, or incited Jeremy into killing her parents, then her actions met the criteria for murder. The trial lasted for more than three weeks, from June 12th through July 9th. Finally, after 25 days, the jury returned a verdict. 
they reached a decision after just four hours of deliberation. JR was found guilty on all three counts of first-degree murder. One of the jurors later said, Truth be told, I did not feel sympathy for her. She got what she deserved. The fact of the matter is that three people are dead so she could have a relationship with a 23-year-old man. We tried to give her the benefit of the doubt, but the evidence was just way too strong to prove anything but guilt. A few months later, on November 8th, JR returned to court for sentencing. Under Canadian law, only a minor over the age of 14 could be tried and sentenced as an adult. JR was tried as a juvenile, which meant that the judge wasn't permitted to give her a sentence of more than 10 years. In JR's case, the judge sentenced her to four years in detention at a rehabilitative hospital, followed by four and a half years of community supervision. This meant she would be released from custody at the age of 18 and complete her supervision at 22. JR's attorneys declined to appeal the ruling. Some members of the public objected to what they felt was a lenient decision. Sean Howard, a spokesman for the Canadian Justice Foundation said, I applaud the judge for giving her the maximum, but in a case like this, it's far short of what many in the community would say is a fair sentence. Even so, most Medicine Hat residents were relieved to have some closure, but it would only be temporary. The city's mayor, Norm Boucher, commented, we're going to have to relive this next year with the next trial. After JR sentencing, Jeremy Steinke was next to stand trial. His proceedings were delayed considerably after his lawyer successfully argued to move the case out of Medicine Hat. The proceedings were switched to Calgary instead. The judge agreed that the case had received too much publicity to draw an impartial jury. On November 17, 2008, 25-year-old Jeremy's case finally moved forward at the Calgary Court Center. Jeremy pleaded not guilty. He had admitted more than once to killing JR's parents, but continued to deny killing her little brother. His lawyer also hoped to prove that the crimes were sudden rather than premeditated attacks, which would have warranted lesser charges of manslaughter rather than first-degree murder. Despite his attorney's best efforts, after a three-week trial, the jury found Jeremy guilty. Unlike JR, he was charged as an adult, his charges carried a mandatory life sentence with no possibility of parole for 25 years. Standing in the courtroom, Jeremy felt a numbing calm spread throughout his body as the jury read the verdict. He heard a voice in the gallery cry out, followed by sobbing, and he realized it was his mother. But he couldn't bring his eyes up to meet hers. He couldn't face anyone. It was all over. The verdict meant they blamed him for everything. It was what he'd expected, but he had held on to a glimmer of hope all this time. Now that was gone and he just felt empty. Jeremy blinked and recalled his mother testifying on his behalf. She talked about his troubled past, how he told her that he'd wished he'd never been born. He still wished that now more than ever. Everything was a waste. The world was a dark place. And he 
only made it darker. After the trial, Sergeant Chris Sheehan, the first police officer to obtain confessions from Jeremy and JR, remarked, Justice has been done. Eventually, the community moved on. Hearings were held every six months to review JR's progress. When she was 16, a judge relaxed her custody arrangement, moving her out of the psychiatric hospital and into a group home. In 2011, she entered the final phase of her sentence, which allowed her to re-enter society. Although early in her treatment, therapists worried that she was failing to take responsibility for her role in the killings, she later showed what they believed to be significant and genuine remorse. The judge overseeing her case complimented her for her cooperation and good behavior throughout her treatment. JR began studying at Mount Royal University in Calgary shortly after her release. In 2015, a judge lifted a curfew imposed on 21-year-old JR. The following year, in May of 2016, the remaining restrictions were lifted. In her final hearing, the judge again praised her progress, remarking, I think your parents would be rather proud of you. She has led a private life since her release. She has declined to reveal her location, maybe to shield herself from public scrutiny, but perhaps also to protect herself from the influence of people like Jeremy. Jeremy Steinke, now going by Jackson May, remains imprisoned in Alberta, Canada, still paying the price for what he did. Thanks again for tuning into Crimes of Passion. We will be back Wednesday with a new episode. You can find more episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals like Crimes of Passion for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Crimes of Passion on Spotify, just open the app and type Crimes of Passion in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time when true love meets true crime. Crimes of Passion was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Crimes of Passion was written by Christina Pamies, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. I'm Lainey Hobbs. <laughs>